I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. I was trying to find the book that I was certain must already have been written about dinosaurs in fiction and what they're for. A Tyrannosaurus. Uh, and what colour are dinosaurs? Yellow and blue and red. It's a very big and complicated story. <laughs> it's not nice. If someone calls you a dinosaur, they're not being nice to you. They mean that you're set in your ways, right? That that, that your views are, are unthinkably outdated. That's a triceratops. To understand the dinosaur properly, you have to try and understand cinema and art history and history and paleontology and archaeology and literature. Dinosaur, are you listening to me? Dinosaur. You know, they're always complicated. Even the ones that are appearing in trashy children's comics. Hello, I'm a real dinosaur. Can you talk? These are the thoughts of my three-year-old son on the important topic of dinosaurs, and more coherently, those of Dr. Will Tattersdale, who's currently undertaking a major research project on dinosaurs in literature and science. Okay, so uh, I'm Will Tattersdale. I'm senior lecturer in popular literature at the University of Birmingham in the UK, and I am writing a book about dinosaurs in popular and scientific culture from 1850 to the present day. So why is my son so fascinated with dinosaurs? Why are children's songs and TV shows and films and books and toys and duvets and clothes all populated with dinosaurs? How, I want to know, did we get from a Victorian anatomist looking at some unusual fossils in 1842 to dinosaur pyjamas for toddlers? Well, the history of dinosaurs has always been about science and storytelling. You can't have a dinosaur without the science, but scientists can't tell their story, create and illustrate and imagine dinosaurs without art and literature. And each generation of scientists and artists, writers and filmmakers, makes dinosaurs perform different cultural work. After all, as Dr. Tattersall points out, without science and literature, there is no dinosaur. They are, to my mind, one of the best ways of thinking about the relationship between literature and science, because you can't have a dinosaur until you've got both uh, a very, very professionalised scientific environment in which a fossil can be create, uh, created and, and discovered and understood. Um, but you also need uh, a professionalised cultural imaginary, a mass readership and kind of that popular environment of fantasy and so forth so that people can kind of sustain those images. Um, so I think, you know, without literature and science, there's no dinosaur. But the story of dinosaurs is also one about time. Our conception of dinosaurs our conception of previous generations' conception of dinosaurs. And then, of course, there's the dinosaurs themselves in their own time, a time so unimaginably, inconceivably distant from our own that it's often impossible to do anything but see ourselves and our world in them. Dinosaurs are for children, but, of course, that's kind of absurd when you think about it. Dinosaurs are monsters, but quite obviously they're not. They really existed. Dinosaurs are, in many ways, and in many B-movies, essentially aliens, Except they're from our own planet. Dinosaurs are alive, vividly depicted in all our imaginations. Their distinct colours, the sounds they make, what they eat, how they move. Except, of course, that nobody, nobody has ever seen a dinosaur. So let's go back to the beginning. 
Before you can start thinking about dinosaurs, you have to live in a time which understands that creatures can become extinct, that the world is not a place where every creature that has existed has always existed and will always exist. And at the beginning of the 19th century, this is something that the French naturalist Baron Cuvier conclusively proved for the first time. Astonishing to us now that somebody had to come up with that. I, I still find it mind-blowing to try and put myself back in a in a in a community of thought where you didn't have that idea extinction and once you've got extinction um these things that were coming out of the earth that had been known about for for centuries millennia in fact but had been thought of in various different ways by people um became understood as as fossils a lot of them most of them are not what we now call dinosaurs there's there's fossil mammals the mammoth in particular. But in the collection of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, there's a, a lower jaw that's quite interesting. It's got some big horrible teeth on it. Uh, nobody knows where it, quite where it comes from It's it, 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 uh, in terms of how it got into the museum collection, but it seems to be from Oxfordshire. Um, and a chap called William Buckland, who's a very famous geologist of the day, gives this thing the name Megalosaurus with Cuvier's blessing in 1824. At this stage, though, the, the word dinosaur didn't actually exist yet. It would take another scientist to start joining the dots. If you've ever been to the amazing Natural History Museum in London, you've probably seen the grand white marble statue of Charles Darwin. It's at the centre of the stairs in this huge cathedral-like entrance hall. What you may not have realised is that this statue was only placed here in 2009. That was the anniversary of Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And it replaced a statue of another scientist, one who was actually a bitter rival of Darwin's. Richard Owen was one of the most renowned scientists of the 19th century, and he's perhaps best remembered today as the founder of the Natural History Museum, hence the statue. But uh, decades before that, uh, he was an anatomist and he was uh, working at the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, and he takes Buckland's megalosaur and puts it together with two other uh, fossils that are known at that time, the Iguanodon of Gideon Mantell, and another animal called Hyliosaurus. Um, and he notices something that those animals have in common, and he says we need a new word to describe these things, and that's dinosaur. So, for the first time, in January 1842, dinosaurs came into existence. Except, of course, they'd been dead for 65 million years. And this is the beginning of our complicated relationship with dinosaurs and time. We're dealing simultaneously here with a human history and a and a deep time natural history, um, and we're, we're we're slipping between those two things so quickly that it's it's almost seamless. It's almost impossible to spot the moments where I stop talking about famous Victorian gentlemen and start talking about animals that romped around many millennia before humanity existed. We humans are really bad at thinking in vast timescales. We can handle centuries and maybe millennia, but geological time, eons, eras, epochs, not so much. There's a common thought experiment, which is to think of the Earth's history, so that's just under 4.6 billion years, as one single calendar year. So the Earth forms on January the 1st. We get the first life in late February and rocks in early March. And then it's mid-July, when we get the first cells with nuclei. But then we have to wait until early December, until insects, amphibians and reptiles finally emerge. Dinosaurs arrive on December the 13th, just before 9pm. And then, at 10am the next morning, mammals arrive. On the 26th of December, 13 days after they arrived, the dinosaurs go extinct. 
And then finally on December 31st, at 11.48pm, so 12 minutes before the present, we arrive, Homo sapiens. Hello. So all of humanity has existed for 12 minutes in this calendar year of the age of the Earth. It still completely destroys my mind to try and imagine the amounts of time that we're talking about here. Um, And in terms of, you know, on the scale of the history of the Earth, the dinosaurs are really not that long ago. Um, But humanity is such a recent affair. One fact that Dr. Tattersdale mentioned when we were chatting was that if you take two of the most famous dinosaurs, so the Tyrannosaurus rex and the Stegosaurus, you're talking about two completely different ages. So, in fact, there's actually more time between the Stegosaurus and the T-Rex than there is between the T-Rex and us, which is kind of crazy. And it really shows us how much we just flatten time and how incomprehensible these timescales really are. As much as it blows my mind and the minds of my students to try and imagine these timescales, um, if you put yourself back in 1842, when even the, the, when the notion of a long Earth is, is new, when the notion of deep time is still not uncontroversial, when there isn't a reliable theory of evolution yet, trying to imagine that kind of amount of time, that number of years, it must surely have been virtually impossible, even for specialists. So this is the world in which scientists in Europe, and very soon further afield, we're exploring the exciting new area of dinosauria, fearfully great lizards. The idea of dinosaurs soon entered the popular imagination. There's a megalosaurus on the opening page of Charles Dickens' Bleak House, for example. However, it would be quite some time until the actual word dinosaur was really popularised. By the general public, they tended to just be called saurians, or simply monsters, or sometimes dragons. Not that people confuse them with mythical dragons, it was just the word that tended to be used for them. It was really towards the end of the century that they started to appear more widely. It really, it really takes until the fantasy Eckler for them to kick off. And I think that that is because of the rise of the boys novel and the imperial gothic, as Patrick Brettlinger has called it. Um, What Michael Saylor calls the new romance, Robert Louis Stevenson, Henry Ryder Haggard, um that whole gang. And even then, the number of kind of outright dinosaur dinosaur stories um, is is pretty small. There's an amazing novel called Beyond the Great South Wall, which is uh, which has a an evil hypnotic brontosaurus ruling the South Pole in it. Um, that's pretty good. That's in the 1890s. It really was the 20th century when things began to change. What happens in the early 20th century that's particularly important is firstly that the giant charismatic sauropods that are discovered in in America, so sauropods are the really enormous long-necked dinosaurs, the brachiosaurs, the diplodocus. Those skeletons start getting assembled in museums from the the very start of the 1900s. Uh, 1905, uh, the brontosaurus goes up in the Yale Peabody Museum and uh, Dippy, the diplodocus, goes up in the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. The Peabody Museum, which is in Yale University, was founded by George Peabody at the urging of his nephew, the paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh. Marsh was at the centre of numerous huge dinosaur discoveries in North America in what became known as the Bone Wars, or the Bone Rush. So the, the 1870s and early 80s in America there's, is, is a period that they sometimes still call the Bone Rush uh, to kind of parallel with the Gold Rush. Um, and that's a period during which American paleontologists in, in particular and very famously two called uh, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, fantastic names, um, two guys who couldn't stand each other kind of in their, in their attempts to outcompete each other, frantically discover virtually every 
dinosaur that you've heard of, uh, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, um, most of the big sauropods, you, you, know, you, you name it. Um, because they are working in a hurry, because they're trying to beat each other, uh, they work quite badly, and a lot of that the mess that they create is still being cleared up um, to this day. It's kind of a, a horrible example of, of frontier science. Um, but there's no doubt that it has an amazing effect on, on people's imagination. So the centre of paleontology shifted from France and Britain to America, following, not uncoincidentally, the centres of global power. And today, incidentally, all the major dinosaur finds are in China. And unsurprisingly, dinosaurs were used metaphorically. The huge creatures could be powerful and naturally supreme, or they could be slow and unwieldy, destined for extinction. Although you could argue that this last feature isn't particularly fair, given that they were around for about 200 million years compared to our measly couple of hundred thousand. It's not at all a, a coincidence that these kind of large, charismatic animals, when they're, when they're discovered, um, are immediately used as metaphors of... Um, American hegemony and kind of manifest destiny and all the rest of it. And even before the dinosaurs, you know, Jefferson is doing it at the very start um, of the uh, at the very start of the uh, idea of America. He's he's got his mammoth. Uh, it's not a dinosaur, but again, he's using prehistory to say, you know, this is this is the American animal, this huge, powerful thing. Um, and then um, the way that sometimes gets picked up in Europe is, oh, look at these big kind of slow, elephantine, stupid, uh, marsh-dwelling things um, that think they're so great. You know, there, there's a huge way in which it translates onto uh, the discourses of nation and of empire. So dinosaurs had a political dimension in the ways that countries vied to create great collections of ever bigger and more complete specimens held in grand museums of natural history. The public could suddenly see the creatures in the flesh, or at least the bone, and they soon made their way far more extensively into pop culture, into fiction, and soon film. But before we delve into film, let's take a quick break. This podcast, as I'm sure you know, is part of the wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network. And I wanted to let you hear a little bit about one of our other shows. David Kitt, hello, how are you? It was a bit dramatic, the post maybe, and part of you goes, oh shit, now. You I feel like to... you have to leave now. Well, there's that, and there's me, and then it's like your mates texting you, going, geez, what's going on? Like, can, can we go yeah. for going away pints and all this kind of stuff? <laughs> Hello, my name is Dave Hanrowdy and there will be no encore, your weekly music smackdown every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Now, back to the podcast. The other thing that changes um, is that cinema is invented. That's Will Tatterstill again. And I think that's hugely important. One of the first uh, animated films uh, ever is called Gertie the Dinosaur. Um, It's by an American artist called Windsor McKay. and it's uh, about uh, 12 minutes long um, kind of vaudeville act uh, where, the, where McKay is kind of physically present in the cinema interacting with the animated Gertie. And it was soon followed up by an adaptation of Conan Doyle's The Last World. And that's the team that goes on to make King Kong um, and, and, and is now, from an animation perspective, is, is kind of a, a rehearsal uh, for King Kong. So it's important in its own right, but it's also important for kind of um, the precedent that it sets in special effects and dinosaurs it seems to me that whenever there's a, a special effects revolution needed uh, 
dinosaurs are very often kind of what's driving people to improve the technology. As the decades went on, dinosaur special effects got better and better. Meanwhile, the science was completely revolutionised. Something very important happens in paleontology in the late 1960s and 1970s, which, um, which is now referred to as the dinosaur renaissance. And this is the uh, emerging understanding um, coming out of America, and in particular from the work of John Ostrom and, um, and, and Robert Bucker, um, that dinosaurs are not kind of slow, cumbersome, marsh-dwelling losers, um, but are these kind of behaviorally dynamic, fast, interesting, much more mammal-like uh, creatures, warm-blooded, right? Um, and once you've got that idea, then it's really only a, a matter of time until popular culture kind of grasps that and embraces it. Of course, that, that moment is, is Jurassic Park 1993. I was 10 when Jurassic Park came out, the perfect age to see the really lifelike dinosaurs on the big screen for the first time. And it wasn't just me. Special effects had finally got to a place where Spielberg's dinosaurs were convincing, not just as terrifying monsters, but as creatures that can be dynamic and awe-inspiring, intelligent and sympathetic. So that's kind of... That's the the thumbnail of, of, of the 20th century, I would say. Um, you, it goes through... It's it's a history of the Hollywood B-movie in some respects, but it's it's also a history of special effects and, and technical accomplishment, and it's a history of real paleontology too. So why the pop culture and scientific fascination? Jurassic Park, to take just one example, has had four sequels. Last year's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom took in well over a billion dollars at the box office. It's one of the biggest grossing films of all time. Just like with any creature in fiction or cinema, whether a real-life animal or a mythical beast, a ghost or spirit, a terrifying monster or a strange alien, our culture is reflected in how we talk about and portray dinosaurs. You know, they're always complicated. Even the ones that are appearing in trashy children's comics um, or on the kind of the most budget Hollywood kind of or sub-Hollywood, off-Hollywood kind of movie productions the kinds of things that um most of us wouldn't normally pay any attention to or regard as remotely serious even there the work that the dinosaur is doing is not always straightforward because they're not monsters even when they're deployed as monsters in movies and you look at you look at jurassic park where they play the role of the monster in a horror movie but it's not just that because there's that sense of wonder and love and admiration kind of in the fabric of that movie as well and Spielberg is really taught he wants you to be scared of them but he doesn't want you to just hate them right they're not they're not just the other that's going to destroy you they're, there's something else going on there and in the same way they're not just aliens they're not just um science fictional outsiders come in to teach us something or to challenge us in some way um and I say those things as if monster and alien are not themselves extraordinarily complex and kind of capacious terms, and of course they are. Um, but the dinosaur, even when it's being used as an alien, even when it's being used as a monster, is always doing more. However disrespectful the, the author of a particular text or, or film is to the, the science, the idea of that science is always there somewhere, underwriting everything, and that changes it. That makes it into something different. And so much of this cultural output is aimed at children. Dinosaurs, we tend to agree as a society, are for kids. 
but you only have to articulate the logical equivalent of that sentence, which is to say bats are for adults or hippos are for women, you know, and then you realize how ridiculous that statement is. Why should a, uh, a huge kingdom of the natural world be for, for a particular group of, of humans? That's a really odd thing to say. That's a really odd thing to do. And this association with children means that most people have their own fond childhood memories of dinosaurs. But this nostalgia for the dinosaurs of our own childhood means that pop culture is very slow to accept the changes in scientific portrayals. And there have been significant changes in the last few decades. Like dinosaurs with feathers. I mean, dinosaurs can't have feathers. That's not what they looked like when I was growing up. Exactly, exactly. And that is, uh, that's what I'm writing about at the moment, that there is this kind of huge... Um, there's this kind of huge drag on the acceptance of new ideas because, and I think really you see this occasionally, but the best analogy for it is Pluto, right? The planet, or not planet, the planetoid. Um, the people care passionately about the removal of its planetary status, and there's a uh, there's a, a, a campaign to bring it back, you know. Um, and why should this matter to anybody? you're never going to go there it's never going to play a part in your life you know well it matters because um it matters because it was a fact in your textbook when you were at school and you learned it in good faith and you were told that it was true and and then someone is trying to change that out from under you well next next they'll tell you that the earth doesn't go around the sun do you know what i mean which brings us back to childhood dinosaurs and my three-year-old with his dinosaur toys and books and pyjamas. He loves them because we as a culture love dinosaurs. They can be scary and roar when he wants to be fearsome or brave. They can be soft and friendly as goodly toys or on his pyjamas. He may not fully understand that they don't exist anymore, but as far as he's concerned, they're as real as crocodiles or tigers or elephants, which, when you think about it, is completely reasonable. No one has ever seen a dinosaur, and no one ever will. I mean, a non-avian dinosaur, that is to say, to be, you know, for any scientists listening. Um, no one will ever see one. No one ever has. That will always be true. And yet, if you say the word dinosaur to anyone, they will have a picture in their mind, and a whole set of knowledges in their mind, immediately. And those pictures won't match, but they'll all be recognisable. Um, it's just remarkable. I think that's completely amazing. And it is amazing. I mean, dinosaurs can be monstrous, but they're not monsters. They're alive but long dead. They're part of a recent human history of science, but also of this vast geological timescale. They're an area of groundbreaking scientific research, an icon of popular culture, and a topic of endless childhood fascination. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back making new episodes. And if you got in touch with the show over the last few months, well, thank you very much. I've had some great suggestions for topics and several people demanding more episodes, which is always good to hear. So thank you. And if you want to support the show, there are any number of very simple things you can do. Tell your friends, post about it on social media, support the show on Patreon, whatever you prefer. 
Links to everything, as well as pictures, notes, further reading, and a full transcript of the show are at the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. That's W-T-T-E, as in Words to That Effect, podcast.com. Special thanks this week to Dr. Will Tatterstill. Links are on the website where you can read about his work and at some point in the near future buy his undoubtedly wonderful book on dinosaurs. And of course, thanks to my son and his dinosaur pajamas, which got me thinking about this whole topic. The great music this week was by Paddy Mulcahy and 3 Epcano, and full details and links are on the site too. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and was recorded in the Headstuff Studio in Dublin. For more, check out headstuff.org. Starting today, the show is back to its normal schedule, so there will be new episodes every second Monday. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.